A reading from the first letter of Peter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hopeful, hopefully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the, fall, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. So this is the second week of the series that we are starting up called Foundations from First Peter. And what he, Peter, the one who Jesus gave that name to, which means the rock, the foundational apostle, what he has to teach us about what it means to live from the foundations of the Christian faith and life. And at, at the core of Peter's message, we saw something last week, and, and it's that Christians are different. He addresses this letter to the resident aliens who have been dispersed. And so we're, we're different. We have a, a different location within the world as resident aliens. And part of the reason we have that different identity is because we have a different hope. We live from a different hope. We're looking forward to something different, and, and that's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And because of that Easter hope, Peter is encouraging the congregations that he's writing to, to to be faithful and remain steadfast in the face of whatever trials and sufferings they have because of their loyalty to Jesus. So he's saying, you're different. You're going to get treated differently, but that's okay. You can endure because you have this hope before you, this, this prize that you're striving after. And so as we continue this morning, Peter kind of sharpens his focus on what it means to be different. What does that look like? What is it that makes these communities, these Christians different? And he uses two different metaphors that I'm going to unpack today. And, and one metaphor is that of ransom, and the other is of rebirth or being reborn. So why are you different? You're, you've been ransomed and you've been reborn. And so it's to what Peter has to say about those two different realities that we're going to turn this morning. And so his first point, the first half of the passage, the point is this, that we've been ransomed for holiness. And so in order to paint a picture of what exactly that might mean, I want to tell a story. 
And this story was inspired by uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. He's one of my favorite New Testament scholars, and he wrote this wonderful little commentary on this. And so this was inspired by, by his, his story, his illustration of what this ransomedness means. It says, imagine that you're going into a, a junk shop, hunt and gather or something like that, a place like that. And so you're looking for something in, in particular when an object catches your eye. It's a bowl about eight inches across with a crack running down one side that had obviously been used by its previous owner for holding flowers. Inside of it are still a few old dried out leaves and a bit of dirt and it's covered in this thick layer of dust. And the bowl is practically buried in the corner of the shop, long neglected and long forgotten. And while it looks to most people like little more than trash, you see its underlying beauty and potential. And so you pick it up and and you take it to the register to buy it and you can hardly believe your luck. You take it home and set about cleaning and restoring it and you've noticed something about this bowl that the shop owner had not, that it wasn't just some old hunk of junk but a finely crafted piece of porcelain. And so you repair the crack and you gradually begin to remove the dirt from its pattern. And soon soon it's as good as new. And when it's done, you you put it in the place of honor in your home, on on the mantle. And and you fill it with these three glorious ornamental eggs to perfect effect. A beautiful piece, your pride and joy to show off something else, just what you'd been looking for. And now imagine that the next day that the original owner of that bowl goes back into the shop and tells the junk shop owner that he wants his bowl back. And so the owner gives him your address and he comes to your house and tells you that he wants his old flower pot back. What would you say to him? You'd probably say something like, no, I'm sorry. It's no longer available. I've purchased it for an even more glorious purpose than you can imagine. Look at it here. What you thought was just some junky old flower pot is actually a gorgeous piece of pottery. And it would be an insult and an injustice to simply let it hold a few flowers and dirt again. It's no longer yours. It now belongs to me. And the good news that Peter has for us is that we are like that bowl. And the reason for that is is this key word that's found in verse 18 of the passage where Peter says, and you were ransomed, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And that word ransomed, it comes from the world of commerce, and it means something that has been purchased back, a, a price has been paid to return it to its rightful owner. Like that bowl from the junk shop, we have been ransomed and purchased for a higher and better use. And before we were ransomed, we were being used for all kinds of purposes that were contrary for the reason for which we were created. What Peter calls the feudal ways, being misused like the dirty bowl in the junk shop, like a, a Ming vase being used as a chamber pot. Like a, like a first edition of Moby Dick being used as a doorstop. Like an original draft of the Constitution being used as, as a piece of scrap paper. Like 
anything else you can imagine just being terribly misused, like a, like a wedding dress being used to mop up a Kool-Aid spill on the ground. That's not what that is for, so don't use it for that. Peter is saying, you didn't understand what you were made for before, but, but now that you do, you're not that anymore. So God came into the junk shop, and he paid the ultimate price. And Peter says that 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 price that was paid for that ransom was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he says he was like a lamb without spot or blemish. And with this language about the lamb being without spot or or blemish, Peter is hyperlinking to something else in the Bible, to Exodus and the story of, of the Passover. Because that's how the lamb is described, that the Israelites were supposed to kill on the night of the Passover was a lamb without spot or blemish. And it was the blood of that lamb that marked the lintels and doorposts. And when the angel of death passed over Egypt and claimed the lives of the firstborn, it spared those whose doors were marked with the blood of the lamb. It was the blood of the lamb that protected and ultimately paid the price for the people's freedom from slavery. And so ransom is thus this incredibly powerful biblical metaphor for what God does. He frees people from their former way of life, which is described as slavery. So it's this powerful biblical metaphor. But also in the the world of the first century Roman Empire, it's a powerful metaphor for another reason. And, And it's for this reason that up to a third of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery was ubiquitous. One out of every three people was a slave, and and this was one of the most important early Christian constituencies were slaves. They were attracted to this gospel message because it spoke directly into their situation. Being ransomed was powerful, and and just to compare it in in the United States before the Civil War, one in ten people were slaves which is an astonishing number, but so it was even more staggering in the Roman Empire. And so when we understand this, we can see this very powerful biblical metaphor of ransom and this very powerful social message that spoke directly to them, and you can see just how this message would have resonated. You were ransom. Jesus paid the ransom for your freedom, for this purpose, Peter says, so that you could be holy. And that's the central message of this first half of the passage. You were ransomed for holiness, so live like it. And holiness is, depending on the tradition you come from, it's basically, I would say, a foreign concept for most of us. Those of us with some background in Christianity, when we hear the word holiness, one tendency, it can, it can stir up these images of kind of an oppressive legalism. You know, uh, there was like the old saying, don't smoke or chew or dance, or chew, or go with girls who do, or something like that. That was like the holiness message from back in the day. Don't play cards, or or drink, or dance, or, you know, any kind of stuff like that. And so it's this oppressive legalism. Or holiness is just something unrelatable, like a few special people are able to attain that kind of otherworldly purity. But this isn't what Peter has in mind. Holiness means set apart for a special purpose. It's like the bowl going from a flower pot in the corner of the store to this decorative piece sitting on the mantle in full display, set apart for a special purpose, for God's special purpose. So when when we think of, of holiness in the world of Scripture, the temple was holy. 
because it wasn't just a regular old building, but it was a place where God was present and worship. And priests as a whole group of people were holy because they weren't just normal butchers or bakers, but they were people who prepared a feast for God and the people. It's, it's easy to miss, but much of what took place in the temple was kind of cooking. You would butcher animals and then cook them or take bread and put it on the altar. And so priests were this sort of set-apart caste of, of food preparers. And so holiness isn't so much about status as it is about purpose. So for us to be holy is to live into God's purpose for us, to not waste our lives being misused like the bowl in the junk shop. We've been bought, we've been cleaned up, and so holiness holiness means that we're not going to go back to the way we were before. We're not going to waste our lives living for or settling for less. Holiness, which you could say is is the Christ-filled life, one of the best ways to understand it is is to do what Peter does here and and contrast it with the Christ-less life. And Peter gives us a picture in this first half of the passage of both. And the Christless life, one of its markers is he says, you were ignorant. You didn't know any better before. You thought that's all there was to life. But, but this ignorance haunted the pagan world of the first century. That God was ultimately unknowable. And at best, all you could do was grope after the mystery of who God was. Plato said, it's hard to investigate and find the framer and father of the universe And if one did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms which all could understand. So even for the philosopher to find God was difficult. And for the ordinary person to understand him, impossible. Aristotle spoke of God as the the supreme cause, the unmoved mover. Dreamed of by all people and known by none. And so in the ancient world, you didn't so much doubt as that there were gods or gods but you believe that such gods were quite unknowable and were totally uninterested in human affairs. And so in a world without Christ, God was mystery and power, but never love. There was no one to whom people could raise their hands for help or their eyes for hope. So the Christless life is marked by ignorance, but it's also one marked by passion over reason. And we tend to now associate religion with emotion and subjectivity. But this wasn't the case for Peter. The people to whom he's writing, their lives had once been totally dominated by their desires and passions. That they were doing whatever they wanted to do or whatever felt right. That's what they were supposed to do. And I'm so glad that we live in a culture that has moved beyond that. I'm glad you detected the note of sarcasm there. (laughs) But following your passion or your desire is only good insofar as those passions or desires are directed towards the right thing, right? If you're passionate about, you know, stealing cars, that's a bad, that's a bad thing, right? That's a very bad thing. Don't, Don't follow your passion if that is your passion. It's about being passionate for the right thing. And so for Peter, the, the, the key is to move from a life where our, our reason takes a second place to our desire and, and to one where reason and sober-mindedness take the lead. So we have this Christless life that's marked by ignorance and it's marked by desire over anything else. And the last thing is that Peter says it's futile. The trouble of the Christless life both then and now is that it's not going anywhere. 
There's no purpose to it. And so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. I had this beach towel growing up with a wonderful pun on it. And I, I picked out the beach towel. I think I got it from Dayton's growing up. And, and it had this dinosaur on it. Um, I don't know if you remember this beach towel. It had a dinosaur on it. It was a fat dinosaur who was enjoying sweets of all sorts. And uh, I just got it because it had a dinosaur on it. I didn't get the pun at the time. But he's sitting there and he's eating all of these sweets and he's fat, just loving life. And it says, um, today we eat, for tomorrow we diet. Um, which is pretty good. Uh, but that, that pun, it captures the predicament, right? With, without hope, what's the point of it all? We're insignificant creatures on this pale blue dot in a vast cosmic ocean. Our best achievements are going to be forgotten. And everything that we do, everything we accomplish as a human civilization will all be for naught when in a couple billion years the sun expands and swallows up our, our little planet. So the Christless life, it, it, to me, the sentiment behind this is, is captured best by this, this Twitter meme statement that you see often, LOL, nothing matters. Right? Pfft, nothing matters. And so Peter says that, that that's what you were before. You were ignorant. You were dominated by, by desire. You were living hopeless lives that were going nowhere. But now, that's not the situation anymore. You were ransomed. You were made holy for a totally different way of living. And so what is the Christ-filled life like? It's one marked by obedience. In verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So a Christless life is about do it, us doing whatever we want to do because we don't know any better. But a Christ-filled life is about us doing what God wants us to do. And a Christ-filled life, a second marker of it, and one that's very countercultural for us, is, is it's marked by reverence. In verse 17, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear, with phobos. And so the fear of the Lord, fear of God, God-fearing, this is archaic. But reverence is maybe something we can understand a little bit better. And, and reverence is the state of mind we have when we understand that we are living our entire lives in the presence of God, always in the presence of God. And, and Peter gives all of these reasons that we revere God. We revere God because he has spared no expense in, 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 in paying the price of Christ's life to ransom us. We revere God because God is our Father, whom we call upon, but the same Father is also the judge before whom we will have to stand one day. And, and we revere God, Peter says, because this is no accident. This, this plan was in place before the foundation of the world. This is no accident. And so we, we live in an age marked by irreverence. LOL, nothing matters. That's irreverence. Nothing's holy. Nothing's sacred. But Peter says, live your lives with fear. Reverence. And one of the things that struck me recently, I was reflecting on planting the church almost five years ago, and one of the first practices that we did was just go around and visit different places um, for worship, and, and you're trying to kind of come up, what do you want the core values to be of this community that you're starting? And one that I never would have guessed in a million years was reverence. This idea of this reverence missing from everything, even, even from the church. You know, churches that you went to that no one said the Lord's Prayer, some had little scripture, most communion never happened, one place was sort of set out like a snack that you could go get for yourself. Um, one pastor was even wearing a leather jacket, you know, he was trying to look so cool. It was like irreverent, irreverent. 
And I'm a pretty, you know, casual, down-home person. But one thing I really wanted, I discovered that I wanted, I didn't even know I was missing, was to go to a place where it was, the message was being communicated that this stuff really matters. Like, this stuff is actually important, you know? This isn't a game, but this is real. And, and God is awesome in, in, in that sense that the very notion that we're in God's presence and we're hearing God's word should fill us with awe. Actually, a decent amount of fear and terror is a healthy response. That's why the most common command in the Bible is don't be afraid, fear not. It tells you maybe you should be afraid. And this reverence is born of the notion that, that God values us so much that, that, that he spared no expense for us. A small approximation of this would be, imagine if someone just came up and gave you a million dollars and said, keep it. You'd be very grateful, probably suspicious of that person and a little terrified of them. With good reason. So I think we need a little bit more of that in our relationship with God. And the last marker of a Christ-filled life is that it is one of brotherly or familial love. And, and the word Peter uses here is, is Philadelphia, Philadelphos, philos love, Adelphos, brother. And so we know, Alban, we have a town named Philadelphia, which is one of the most ironic towns in America because it's the last place in which you will see brotherly love. You will see a lot of greased poles, though, to keep those wonderful Philadelphians off of them. And so this is, this is brotherly love. And then we, you know, this different kinds of love, you can't stress too far because just after Peter says, have familial love, have brotherly love. He uses agape love too, so they both go together. But he's saying basically do the hard work of loving the people you're in community with. He says love one another earnestly, and that word earnestly is a word for strenuously with your full effort, which probably means that loving other people is going to take a lot of energy and effort and work. Even though y'all are very lovable people, it's going to take work even for the best of us. And I, I, as I was doing my research this week, I, I found this wonderful quote that I had to share from this Scottish biblical scholar. His name is I. Howard Marshall. And he wrote this in the early 90s, and he's talking about, this is a command, love one another, try really hard to do this. And he's sort of writing from his own perspective as he says this, of a you know, sort of 60-year-old uh, Scottish man. And so he says, think of the man who sits on the opposite side of church from you and to whom you rarely speak. Think of the woman in the choir with a cacophonous voice who ought to have retired voluntarily years ago. And this is my favorite. Think of that teenager with the ghastly hairstyle who shows an adolescent disdain for an old square like you. Do you love them deeply from the heart? If not, what excuse can you offer for going against this plain, straightforward command? What excuse can I offer? That's good. So that's the Christ-filled life of, of holiness, of obedience, reverence, love. And so the basis for this new life is that we have been ransomed by the work of Christ. But the strength to live that new life is because we have been reborn through the word of Christ. So the basis is that we've been ransomed by the work of Christ. The strength for this new life is because we've been reborn through the word of Christ. And so this is where Peter, he switches up his metaphors, and we're going to pivot here too, from, from ransom and the slave market to rebirth and the maternity ward. So the first part, Peter says, you've been ransomed for holiness, so live like that. Don't go back to the old way that you lived when you were ignorant. And, and now it's that you've been reborn to a totally new way of life, so don't go live like the old life anymore. And the way that you're reborn, he says, is through the word, it's through the gospel. This did a work in you. This is how you were reborn. 
It totally changed your life. And how does it work? It works a little something like this, that, that the followers of Jesus seem to have discovered that when they spoke to people about Jesus, something happened. And it wasn't just that people were interested or they decided either to go along with the message or reject it. It was that the word seemed to carry an energy, a power beyond the mere words themselves. It, it, was, a, it was through the word spoken that something like a blood transfusion happened and took place in the hearts of at least some of the hearers. They found themselves gripped by it, transformed by it, rinsed out by it, given a new sense of the presence of God by it. Maybe you've had that experience too when when the good news about Jesus is declared that because of his life and his death and his resurrection that the, the gates of the kingdom of God have been opened wide to whoever believes in it. That God works in your heart and your life and so that some of those who hear it, there's a whole new orientation to the world that takes place. A brand new life. They are born again. And this born-again language is the language of conversion. But in the early church, conversion and baptism were very closely tied together. And some think of this Peter using language that was taken from an early baptismal sermon, or the whole letter is even a baptismal sermon. And so baptism was pictured as this dying and rising again, and that rising again was a new birth, a second birth. And one of the ways that this was played out in the life of the early church was that um, in certain instances when people got baptized, what would happen was you would strip off all your old clothes, get totally naked, and you would go into the baptismal waters and be plunged beneath them, and then you would go back out and be given a fresh new white garment, fresh white clothes. And that's pretty extreme and uncomfortable to think of, and, and, and although there was not the same sense of privacy in the ancient world. Here, I'm sure that getting naked and plunged in the water with someone else was uncomfortable for them, too. And so, it was uncomfortable, but there was this message that the change in your life is so profound that there's no ritual we can do that's not this extreme to send that same message. You got to get naked, get plunged, and get new clothes. He's saying, take off the old clothes because they don't fit anymore. That old life doesn't fit anymore. And so the old clothes were these list of antisocial behaviors that, that Peter gives, the things that are corrosive and, destruction, and destructive to Christian community that we've always got to be on guard against. So Peter says, put away, and the Greek here literally means strip off. Strip off all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And so the life of malice, it's one marked by deceit when you're, when you're two-hearted. Our words and our motives and our intentions are not honest. And it's one of hypocrisy, which means being two-faced, saying that we believe one thing and then act another way. Envy, you know, you want what someone else has, but not only that, you want the other person to suffer the loss of losing what they had. And lastly, and most importantly of all, he's saying get rid of slander, which literally means talking down, talking people down, tearing them down. And that's the most pernicious thing of all, that that Christian speech in community is supposed to build people up. And when you tear people down, that is so destructive. And I've thought a lot about that recently. And as we move forward and we continue to grow, these kind of life group communities are going to become more and more important. And so part of doing that, um, when we went to one to three, uh, Laura Gillen asked me this amazing question. She said, well, why do we do these anyways? I said, that's a great question. <laughs> Besides like, uh, it's just something we do because other churches do them and they seem to be good. Uh, but it was this 
defining moment. And so it's like, okay. And so I've continued to think about that question. Why do we do life groups? Okay. Well, it's a place to be known where we have edifying conversations about the intersection of Christian faith and everyday life. And that word edifying is there for a reason. Because in a world that wants to tear us down, the last thing we need to do is get together with a bunch of other people from our church and have them tear us down too. We want to build each other up. And so Peter says, get rid of the old clothes, the old life, because you've been reborn. And so now you've been reborn, you need to do what infants do. Drink the pure spiritual milk so that you can grow up into salvation. And this is so helpful because you say, okay, I've been ransomed for holiness and I've been reborn to live this new life. Well, how the heck am I supposed to have the strength to do that? I know myself, I'm not that good. How are we supposed to do this? And the answer is this wonderful metaphor of being a newborn. And one of the practices that's come into the maternity ward in the last few years is this thing called kangaroo care. The idea is if your baby is newborn, the mom and the baby are healthy, as soon as the baby's born, you put it right on mom's chest. So immediately, uh, the baby can bond with their mom and, and even start breastfeeding immediately. This happened with two, two of our three kids. And Greg was unfortunately too busy being resuscitated to, uh, to participate in that activity. But it's this incredible moment of bonding and um, you know, getting the baby that colostrum, which you don't even, I never even heard of it before, but it's like this miracle stuff. It's so good. And so we've learned so much recently, too, about how good breastfeeding is for babies. And so that's why it's this wonderful metaphor for the spiritual life. Peter's saying, if you want to grow and thrive as a Christian, crave spiritual milk the same way a baby craves their mother's milk. And what is this spiritual milk? Thankfully, it's not too complicated. It refers to the very things that nourish Christian community in its growth. Knowledge of God, prayer, instruction in the gospel, faithful obedience, and hearing God's word. And that last thing is the irreducible heart of it all. That nothing can cause us to grow and mature like taking in God's word because God's word has life, it gives life, and it nourishes life. And so through faithful application and study of the word, we will grow up. And then we will, in, in the words of Psalm 34, what's quoted at the end of our passage, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so for my message for you today is this, to sum up, that God ransomed you so that you can be holy and not just like everyone else, so don't settle for anything less. And if you want to be holy, be a baby, because God's word is like pure spiritual milk. And as we learned in the 1980s, Milk does a body good. And pass it on. That was also a good thing. And it does a body of believers very, very good. So pass that on. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this word. Let it be the foundation of who we are. God, that you love us so much. You said these aren't just common things, but we are holy, set apart for you. And Lord God, that you want us to grow and to mature and stand on our own two feet. And so nourish us with your word and your very life here at this table. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who ransomed us. Amen.